Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So guys, uh, a little bit of a disclaimer before we dive in, and this is a little bit difficult, um, but the content today is some mature, like pretty mature content. So if you have kids in the room, even youth in the room, like younger, junior high, uh, normally I would just say they are more than welcome to be in, in here. As parents, you have been forewarned that we're going to be talking about some pretty mature content. Uh, so if that's like, if they're like not going to want to hang out in kids ministry, um, you are more than welcome to like go and grab some coffee at Bird Rock or something like that. There's like no, just I, I would hate as a parent if some of my kids were to hear this content too young. It's good, but it needs to be age appropriate. So just know that that's, that's coming at you. Um, and everyone else, buckle up. <laughs> so, uh, because we are talking about the seventh commandment, which is do not commit adultery. And this is the real reason why I think Brian decided not to be here. He's just decided not, he didn't want to preach this one. So um, if you guys have a Bible, why don't you take that out? Um, we've been reading all of the Ten Commandments uh, each Sunday. We're not going to do that today, but we're just going to point out verse 14. says, do not commit adultery. It's uh, clear. It seems straightforward. Yet at the same time, how that seventh commandment has been interpreted throughout the ages has differed based on the worldview, based on people's experience. And teaching on this topic is going to be broader than maybe just the technical act of marital infidelity because Jesus broadens this quite a bit. And we have to take a look at our cultural moment and how we have been immersed in a certain type of ideology and worldview and how we approach the kind of the story of sexuality and fidelity. And that has made this seventh commandment one that we have to take some time to unpack because there's not a person in the room that has not been impacted in some sort of negative way because of the brokenness in our world due to human sexuality. And because of that, there is, there is this thing within us, that, I, and even for me as a preacher that I come into this, that I just want to recognize that like, uh, there's a sensitivity as well, that I just wanted to say, like, if, if this, even this topic is hard, know that um, our hope is that this would not produce guilt, this would not produce fear, this would not produce shame, but it would create a way forward in terms of healing, in terms of wholeness. And so if you're a person, you're like, you are, your life has been marred because of the brokenness our world has under understood and formed us in sexuality, I'm, I'm deeply sorry, and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're part of this community, and my hope is that this would be a place of healing for you, not just today, but moving forward. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of a map today of what we're going to be covering, 
in order for us to uncover the practicality of how to live out the seventh commandment, I believe we need three things. Number one, we need a resensitization, meaning we have lost sensitivity. We've grown calloused in our heart when it comes to this topic, when it comes to this theme. And we need to get our feeling back. Um, when I was first playing guitar, I remember uh, early on, it was so painful to put my fingers onto thin wire, like steel strings. And after a while, I stopped feeling it, that there was no more pain. I could play for hours. And interestingly enough, I don't play guitar much anymore. And if in the rare chance I start playing guitar again, it hurts <laughs> because I've actually lost those calluses. That's actually my prayer today. The calluses that our culture has helped grow over our hearts, we actually regain sensitivity. Second thing is because of the unique cultural moment we live in, I think we need a re-strategization. I'm kind of making up words right now. I'm like Dr. Seussing it. But we need a new strategy. We can't just lean on what worked at one time because we live in a different world. We need to relook at how do we approach this. And lastly, and I believe most importantly, we need a re-sacredization. We need a new vision of God. We need to see him, know how he views us, and how he views our sexual formation. So, and rather than reading through the Ten Commandments, I want to read you Jesus' commentary on the Seventh Commandment. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, he says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is some very strong, shocking words. Specifically to the audience he's talking to, no one interpreted the seventh commandment like that. And what Jesus does right here, and we'll talk about it more in a minute, is he's moving this, for his audience, this agreed upon acceptance of their interpretation of the seventh commandment. And he flips it on all of them and essentially says, all of you have broken this. There's not a single human being that has found themselves drawn to a beauty or a relationship or a longing that was not ordained or given by God. And when we trespass, that we have trespassed the seventh commandment simply by lusting. And we live in a culture that not only allows lust, it often celebrates it. And so I want to talk a little bit about our moment, our cultural moment, and some of the, not only the realities of where we live, but some of the results of the overly sexualization of our culture. And so in the 1960s and 1970s, there was this huge uh, movement within our culture called the sexual revolution. Oftentimes, it gets associated with hippies and this free love movement. Uh, There's a lot of legislation that moved around the time. It was the first time that birth control was being given to people who were not married. Uh, it was the first time that um, abortion uh, was allowed. There's all sorts of these laws literal and um, ideological that were being moved, boundaries that were being moved in the wake of this. And so this is why 
In the 1950s, C.S. Lewis wrote, we grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. The problem is, in the wake of the sexual revolution, in the past 15 to 20 years, we now have a new revolution that's the technological revolution. So it's taken the ideologies, it's taken some of the movement from the 60s and 70s, and we've seen it played out in devices that we now all have. And when you used to have to go and seek out in a semi-public manner to be able to lean into these things, now it's at your fingertips. The rise of internet pornography has been staggering the past 20 years. One of the fastest growing industries in the entire world. Ted Scheimer recently, last year, came out with an article citing some research. And the article is called How Porn is Rewiring the Brains of a Generation. And the reason we're talking about this is because Jesus made this abundantly clear. This is what I meant. It's a heart issue. It's what you see. It's not just who you touch or who you're with. One of the points of research says that over the last decade, the percentage of American men between the ages of 18 and 30 who reported not having sex in the preceding year went from 10% to 28%. I remember this research started coming out, and all the conservative Christians were like high-fiving each other, like, look at this amazing moral movement in our nation, until they realized that this dramatic drop of people having sexual encounters was a result of pornography, not of morality. Dr. Mark Regenerous in his research says the pursuit of real sex with real women seems no longer a benefit worth the costs of wooing. They may not declare virtual sex great sex, but they may conclude that it's good enough. And so we live in this world where the, the relational fabric is beginning shifting. Um, it's interesting as I spend time with young people, young adults. I was with their young adults group on Thursday night. And the amount of good, godly Christian men and women in their 20s who are not dating is alarming the 20-year-olds. They're like, no one's dating. There's, there's something at a felt level that's shifting in our culture where people are becoming satisfied with a lesser version of that. And it's not just changing our social, social climate. It's changing our biology. Um, one research says that before internet porn, only 5% of men under 40 had ED. Today, 33% of men under 40 report some degree of ED. Surprisingly, this is an issue we are seeing more increasingly among teenagers. In 2016's study, the Canadian adolescents showed that 45.3% admitted to problems with erectile function. Meaning, because of the neurological effects of pornography, when an individual has an encounter with a real person, they cannot perform the way that their body was biologically meant to perform. This is, this is, this is not men in their 60s. This is 16-year-olds. A married couple who watch porn are 318% more likely to have an affair than porn-free couples. For a national survey of over 15,000 adults asked respondents when they first had sex with their current or most recent relationship. 32% of men under 40 reported they had sex with their current partner before the relationship began. Think about that. One third of relationships are meeting the highest level of intimacy before the lowest level of commitment. Like we, we are in the wake of something that is 
drastically moving culture. And by the way, this, this is not just for like those out there. This is here. In a survey of 1,300 Christian college ministry leaders, 51% of the females from this group watch porn at least occasionally. 70% of them either had watched porn or had sexual hookups in the last 12 months. The number of men was much higher. These are our future pastors, ministry leaders, husbands, wives, moms, and dads. It seems that this is leaving no one untouched, unscathed by this. And yet at the very same time, our culture is crying out, saying this isn't right. We see this in all sorts of different ways. There's a website that became famous uh, called Ashley Madison. There's a documentary that just came out. And the website boasted that it helped married people have affairs. And as the website started to grow, someone hacked into the system and they decided to say, hey, if you don't shut down your website, we're going to expose every single person who's registered. And in 30 days, they decided to not shut down the website, and they did exactly what they promised. And they exposed thousands of political leaders, religious leaders, civic leaders, the people who are on this website. Think about the Me Too movement that started a few years ago. This was not some sort of politically driven agenda. This was the agenda of an entire nation that had been harmed and broken because of the sexual brokenness within our world. There's something drastically wrong. There are now um, articles saying that people are asking for signed documentation before you have a sexual encounter because they're afraid of being sued. This is the best our culture can do. And I think one of the, the darker and one of the more scary things is that in the rise of full, free access to as much sexual material as you want, the, the largest growing trend in terms of what people are saying they want in terms of their pornography is violence. The violence is growing in terms of people's level of arousal. And the reason this is so dangerous is because what neurologists say that what fires together wires together. So when you put something that God designed to increase dopamine and connection and joy attached with violent death and murder, which we talked about last week, there's a significant warping and problem that's going on within our nation. Chris Hedges, who does research around this, says, I think the reason porn is so difficult for so many people to discuss is not that it's about sex. Our culture is saturated in sex. The reason it's difficult is that porn exposes something very uncomfortable about us. We accept a culture flooded with images of women who are sexual commodities. Increasingly, women in pornography are not people having sex, but bodies upon which sexual activities of increasing cruelty are played out. And many men, maybe even a majority of men, like it. I mean, there's this reeks of the enemy of taking a God-given beautiful thing out of its context, so now it's bringing apart death and destruction. Billie Eilish, the Grammy award-winning artist, in a recent interview said this, I think porn is a disgrace. I used to watch a lot of porn, to be honest. I started watching porn when I was like 11. It helped me feel like I was cool and one of the guys. I think it really destroyed my brain, and I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn. She added saying that she suffered nightmares because some of the content she watched was so violent and abusive. This is the world we're living in. And before we demonize our current culture, 
I got to let you know that the ancient culture wasn't much better. By the time Jesus was giving his commentary on the seventh commandment, it was in the height of the Greco-Roman Empire, which invented modern-day pornography. They praised the human body, and there was incredible wrongs done in the name of pleasure. And in a response to the Greco-Roman over-sexualization and licentiousness, there was a legalism that was being practiced by the Pharisaical Jews. And in their version, their interpretation of the seventh commandment only viewed the seventh commandment as a command for you to not cross boundaries. They looked at women as property. Your wife was a property. And so their interpretation of the seventh commandment is the reason you don't have an adultery is that someone else's property. And you don't cross those boundaries. So when Jesus shows up and he says, the seventh commandment is not about you crossing a property line. The seventh commandment is about your heart and your eyes. It is about who you are. And Jesus takes both the cultural and the religious narratives and flips it on its head and says, we need a new vision. We need something else. Because what's been going on is not working and it's causing unprecedented pain and destruction. And so I think we, this morning, we need a new vision. We can't lead into the culture and we can't lead into over-religiosity. We need a kingdom vision of what does it mean. Daryl Johnson says that when Yahweh commands you shall not commit adultery, Yahweh does not does so for our good to protect and enhance our sexuality as though the manufacturer was saying powerful gift handle with care. John Tyson came up with this really helpful framework, I believe. I want to share this with you in terms of the, the, the narrative we have. The first one is the secular narrative. The secular narrative views our sexuality primarily as a form of identity. And when we understand sexuality as a form of identity, then we are concerned with the rights and that no one has the right to touch our identity. No one has the right, political system, religious system, individual parents, has the right to transpose my rights. And what that turns into is an ideology. And the end goal of this ideology is pleasure. And the only boundaries that this pleasure has is consent. And that consent is changing ever so often because it's defined by sociology. And all of us, at some level, have grown up in this framework. But maybe some of you guys grew up in the church and you grew up in this other uh, framework, which is a shame-based framework. And a shame-based framework starts with legalism. It's concerned with the letter of the law. And as a result of that, we praise moralism. Those who can obey the law as is understood and we interpret this morality through legalism. And the driving force behind this is fear. If I don't, if I don't obey the letter of the law, if I don't do this perfectly. And so that fear drives us to secrecy. And ultimately, that secrecy gives birth to hypocrisy. My friends, I'm so tired of being sent another article from another prominent religious leader. Of being on a platform and talking about Jesus and in the private sector of their life, doing things that are completely out of line with God's vision for sexuality. And I believe these people genuinely, at least at one point, loved God and loved Jesus, but they adopted a shame-based framework in terms of sexuality. And their fear drove them into hypocrisy. 
But what I want to propose this morning is a third framework, and that's a sacred framework. When we understand a sacred framework, we understand that sexuality is primarily not about pleasure. It's about formation, our spiritual formation. And when we understand it forms us and has the potential, whether through restraint or whether through participation in God's right context, it forms our spirit, which ultimately leads us to fulfillment, a life of fulfillment that is defined not by our own ideology or not by literalism, by, by healthy theology. And that healthy theology, this is so beautiful, is formed by grace. And when we understand God's grace and his kindness, it brings us to repentance. It brings transformation. And at the end of what we really want behind all of sex is belonging. And Jesus is the one who gives us that. And when we live into sex through its right context, it gives us something completely different. Ronald Rollheiser says that sex cannot deliver the goods. It alleviates our loneliness too little, especially our moral loneliness. Sex that isn't sublime doesn't bring us a soulmate. What it brings is a fix, a hit, a drug that helps us through a lonely night or a lonely season. But that deep down we cannot give us what we need. And sex cannot be sublime without, his, without first living a real chastity. The person who sleeps with somebody he or she hardly knows has no real commitment to and has never lived a chaste tension with will not have a sublime or profound experience. Short-circuiting chastity is like trying to write a masterpiece overnight. Good luck, but it's not going to happen. I love this last line. Great love, like great art, takes great effort, sustained commitment, and lots of time. One report I was reading this week said that the subculture reporting the highest level of sexual satisfaction are monogamous married Protestants. Whoop, whoop, you know, like. I was like, obviously, you know. But I think it's, I think it's what Rollheiser said, right? Great love, like great art, takes great effort, sustained commitment, and a lots of time. And there's so much physiology and neurology that goes on to how sex was not designed for one-night stands. It was not designed for pornography. It was designed for one person for a lifetime that grows in its ability to flourish. So what do we do? I think we need a new strategy. We need a re-strategization that matches the current desensitization that we've had as a culture. So three things to consider. Number one, cut it out. Next, confess to one another. And lastly, consecrate your life. When I say cut it out, I'm not just trying to be just kind of coy, slap on your wrist, just like, just stop it. I know that there are people who like genuinely want to stop. And you just hearing, cut it out, is not helpful. When I say that, I mean it in the most literal sense of what Jesus said. After Jesus said that, if you have lust after a woman, you have committed adultery. Guys, this is, we're in a room filled with adulterers, according to Jesus' definition. He then goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Now, There is no serious biblical scholar that thinks Jesus is being literal here. Praise God. Right? We get like, this is, this is, that's a rejoicing moment in the sermon. There's also no serious 
biblical scholar that does not say that Jesus is being very serious. He's saying you need to deal violently with the sin in your life. He's not promoting hurting yourself or harming yourself. What he's saying is, what is the source? What is bringing about this thing? And I think, again, in our unique context, they didn't have iPhones. They didn't have the internet. But I'm curious if we applied that same sort of rationale to our time, if God would begin to start speaking, what is the source that's bringing about this temptation? Cut it off. Cut it out. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. That word flee in the Greek means to escape, elude, to flee, take flight, shrink, stand, fearfully elude, and to make an escape. What's interesting about this is Paul likes warfare language. He likes stand, fight the good fight, put on the armor of God. When he talks about sexuality, you know what he says? Run away. Don't fight it. Don't think of yourself too highly. This will take you out. You need to cut it off. You need to let it go away. Dr. Lewis Smees out of Fuller Seminary says, pressures are not excuses. They're only factors in people's lives that sometimes shove them toward adultery. They do not, or they do make people vulnerable. I just love that. Like, it, pressures are not excuses. We cannot look at our culture and just say, you know what? And by the way, and I'm speaking as a pastor here. Unfortunately, I've had so many conversations with men struggling with pornography. And in their conclusion, it's like, it's just kind of a thing in our culture now. So many people struggle with it. It's like every guy I talk to is struggling with it. So, and they have this like kind of, what's the point? And I just want to say, if, if Jesus 2,000 years ago was serious about removing this from our life, then 2,000 years later, we need to be just as serious about removing it from our life. Do not let the widespread nature of our culture make this put calluses over your heart. So just a couple practical things to consider. Number one, change your device. There's like some really cool phones now that like don't have internet on it. And you can, you can find them. Go, I mean, go get a razor, guys. Like those are great phones at one time. Change your device settings. Share your passwords with your friends or your spouse. Um, if you have kids, don't give children smartphones with unlimited access to, to internet. And I say that because I've sat with people whose parents gave them access to the internet and without them trying or without their parents letting them, they were watching, they were exposed to pornography at the ages of six and seven. What that does to you is hard to re-repair. So it's, it's this idea. Um, there's amazing apps like they're called Covenant Eyes. And I have tons of guys throughout our church who use Covenant Eyes as their browser, and it gives a report to the people you select of like, hey, activity looks great this week, or hey, there's some suspicious activity, like you might want to check this out. And the biggest complaint that I have from people about it is it's just, it's a slow browser. And I'm just like, isn't that worth it? (laughs) I mean, believe me, I hate slow internet as much as anyone. My gosh. Talk about first world problems. I will join in that, like, you know, complaint with you. But it's so worth it. Um, Up in Encinitas, it might be a little bit of drive for you guys. We have a pure desire open table. Maybe start one down here. 
We have amazing material. Do this in the context of community. We have a, we have a unique group for women who are dealing with betrayal of men who have been And by the way, I know I'm speaking directly to men. I, statistically, this is a growing problem amongst women, rapidly. I know this is not just a, a male problem. But as I bring all of these things to you, the, here's my concern. Your willpower is not strong enough for you to change. And so you could take all these strategies, get all the apps, get the accountability partners, all of those things. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of it. I think it's amazing. I celebrate them. Your willpower is not strong enough to change you. Otherwise, it already would have. John Tyson, again, gave this um, helpful grid in terms of the, the cycle of religious guilt. And I, I think it's really helpful to kind of like see this. The top of this framework is you just try harder, right? You hear a sermon like this, and you're like, oh, man, I just need to like work harder at this. And then after you try harder long enough, then you have fatigue. Month two, week two, month three, year into it, you're just like, I had a good run, but, man, I'm just tired. And after you're fatigued enough, you quit. And after you quit, you have shame. And when your shame gets bad enough, you try harder. And you just do the cycle all over again. There's got to be a better way. I think the other vision is that, the other framework I should say is, we don't need to start with try harder. We need to start with vision. We need, this is what today is. Today is we need a new vision. And when we have a new vision, here's the difference. We don't just leave here being like, I'm, I'm in. I'm never going to lust again. Like, things like that. Because, and you know why the problem is that? Your sexual drive is not bad. So if you're trying to pray away your sexual drive, God's like, well, I wired you to have this drive. It needs to be in its right context. And so what you need is less information and you need habits, practices, rhythms in your life. This is why I'm a fan of accountability groups, why I'm a fan of different things. It's because you don't just need more information. You're not like one sermon away from purity. You, you need to instill practices of love that move you towards love. And as you do that, you'll start to see transformation as transformation always brings joy. And then that joy fuels that vision that Jesus gave you. I think one of the greatest tools and greatest practices of love that we have is confession. Confession is a powerful, untapped tool. James 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Well, you know what I want to consider? Confess the sins that you're doing and confess the sins that were done to you. Find the like, safe people to process your hurt, your humanity, your longings, your brokenness, your addictions, your patterns. Because when we do this, we begin to start seeing something beautiful work itself out. You see, confession is so powerful because when it becomes a part of the culture and a part of the communities, why I love seeing how many open tables are being like started here in downtown is that when you can live in the context of honesty and confession, you can tell someone when something's a level one or two, not when it's a level nine or ten. And can I just can I coach you up here a little bit? If someone comes and confesses something to you, that took a tremendous amount of courage. And because it takes so much courage, the temptation is to want to just pat them on the back and just say something like, you know what, not a big deal. Can I tell you something? That's actually not helpful. 
Because if they're coming, especially if they're confessing sexual sin, according to Jesus and the Apostle Paul, it's actually a very big deal. And what they need is not for you to belittle their sin. What they need is you to draw them near and say, I know this is a big deal, and I know God wants something more for you. Can I walk with you in grace and compassion? Can I check in on you? Can we, can we strategize together or some ways that we could help you in this? I remember one time years ago, I had a conversation. I was in a moment where I was struggling with something. It was like a level two or three, but I could feel it growing. And I called this guy in the church that I used to work at. I'm like, hey, can I have coffee with you? Sat down. I told him, like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this. And he looks at me and literally goes, you know what? We all struggle with it. It's not a big deal. And I'm like, not helpful. <laughs> like, like, help lift me up. And I get it. We're in a room filled with flawed and broken people. But if we can say, hey, let's journey together towards wholeness and Christ-likeness. Let's continue to lift each other up in this. And what it creates is a a culture of humility and transparency and safety rather than religiosity. of Like I have to find the person who's like some sort of like moral Yoda out there who never sins. And they're the only person I can confess to. It's like, no, we, we carry each other's burdens. And by the way, I know we've talked a lot about, like, pornography. This is not just what you view. Sometimes this has to do with your heart. I think some of the most damaging, cup, like, situations that I've had to walk with through couples are when there's emotional affairs. That you are no longer going to your spouse for your emotional needs to be met, and you're looking for someone else, and you're lingering at a desk too long, or you're... Or you're deleting a text message that was sent because you know you don't want your spouse to read it or you're going and you're looking back at a previous relationship on social media there's one report that said that um, the number one reason cited in Britain for divorces was Facebook like the people are just going and finding not, not an old person but an old memory of how life used to be they want a simpler time they, they're chasing that adrenaline that, that thing and so I just I just want to say whether it's emotional, whether it's visual, whatever is going on that you know is not part of Christ's vision, lean into confession. Dr. Paul Mickey, who used to be a head of psychology at Duke University, says, In my counseling experience, an extramarital sex act is rarely the first expression of lust in a person's life. It's usually the last. Share with someone if it's a level one or two. Don't wait till it's a level eight or nine or ten. And can we all agree This would be the place we can do that. This is the kind of people that can welcome that and share that. That we can lean into vulnerability and continue to call ourselves through the Holy Spirit towards Christ's likeness. Which leads to, I think, the the most powerful strategy that we have, which is not new. It's ancient. It's a consecrated life. It's giving our life over to God. Your life, your body, your sexual drives are not your own. Again, I want to read the Apostle Paul when he says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If there's one verse that I think flies in the face of our cultural narrative is the verse says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your 
bodies. And when we live a consecrated life, we realize that there is not a single drive that we have, whether it's for water, sleep, food, or sex, that is not ultimately pointing us towards God. And so when we have those drives, we say, Lord, would you, would you direct that drive towards you and or in the way you've ordered it? And, and so if you're married, it's to your spouse, but ultimately it drives you back to the Lord. Friedrich Buechner one time was in Jamaica, and he writes about this moment that he saw this woman he was lusting after. And he writes this, what I was really longing for was the beauty beyond the beauty. It wasn't her. It was something beyond her. There was this beauty. There's this thing I'm longing for. Maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's belonging. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's control. But whatever is driving you in that sin, know that it's God that you're ultimately chasing for, which is why G.K. Chesterton says that everyone who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. And I believe that, which is why you are welcome here, no matter how sexually broken you feel. Because you're here because that drive, that brokenness will continue to not satisfy, will continue to lead you to emptiness until you root yourself and consecrate yourself to let God be the source of your satisfaction. Which leads to our last point this morning. We need a resacredization. We need those calluses to leave our hearts. And in order to do that, we need to see God again. I think the most tragic portion of Exodus chapter 20 is after God gives the Ten Commandments, the people are at the foot of the mountain, and they're invited. The trumpet sounds, which was their cue, they could move closer. And they say, Moses, you go for us. And Moses says, no, he's testing you. Come closer to God. And he says, no, we'll stay back. We need a new vision of God. We need to see him. I think one of the most powerful passages in Scripture in terms of dealing with confession, sexual sin, is in David's prayer of confession after he sinned with Bathsheba. Not only did he sin against her, But then he goes and murders her husband to cover up his sin, putting the entire nation of Israel in jeopardy. And in the midst of that, he begins to start this prayer. He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Now listen to verse 4, and I want you to see, is this you? He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. What do you mean? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against Uriah? Didn't he sin against his nation? Didn't he sin against his other wives? I mean, like, there's so much sin. But in the midst of that, the reason we look to David as the man after God's own heart is because he says, God, I sinned against you. He approached the mountain. He didn't stray back. And if we can see God again, high and lifted up, two things will happen. Number one, we'll stop comparing our righteousness to those around us to feel better about ourselves. And we'll become deeply convicted about the sin in our lives. But here's the second part. When we understand God's holiness, in his holiness, not only does he hold us up to righteousness, but he meets us with compassion and grace. You see, the world, the best it can do is lower its standard because it will not treat you with compassion and grace. And so it will fool you into thinking, I'm not going to require much of you until it cancels you, until it makes sure that you know that you are not welcome here anymore. Yet God says, I will not lower my standard for you, but when you miss it, 
I will meet you with my nature, which is compassionate and merciful and gracious, which is why David starts out the psalm. I mean, this literally makes me emotional. He says, be gracious to me, God. He appeals to his nature. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. It's why he ends it by saying the sacrifices pleasing to God are a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart. My friends, we need to see God again. Let, let the vision you have of God bring strong conviction in your heart. But know this, that strong conviction will be met with an even stronger grace. It will be met with compassion unlike any person, culture, world, or church could even give you. It is God. It is in his nature. And that's why David, David's prayer in Psalm 51 is so profound. Because he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Because he knows he cannot face anyone else until he faces God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as they come back up, I'm, I've, I've found myself so grateful that this is how we change. And it's not by you leaving here being like, just with this burst of moral energy and willpower. Jen sent me this quote last night that was so funny. She's, it's from D.L. Moody. He says, I'm glad we're saved by grace and not by good works because I don't want to sit in heaven and listen to everybody brag for eternity on how they got there. <laughs> and I think that this is the beauty of the gospel is it invites us into transformation and wholeness, but it does so not by the means of our own work, effort, and strength, but by the assurance of God's grace and goodness and mercy. So would you stand to your feet with me as I pray? I want to pray a few of the verses from Psalm 51 over us this morning. Will you bow your heads with me? And would these words seep into your heart and would they come out of you as a prayer? God, Create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Come have your way, Holy Spirit. Move in us, liberate us, free us, not by our own strength or effort, but by your spirit. The Lord, the results, Lord God, would not be moral perfection, but holistic healing and transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.